Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you, wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Asha, my co-host, Eb Wilkinson, coming to you live from the luxurious Wilkinson Wealth Management Studios, located in the KVOI Broadcast Complex in Tucson, which is all dressed up with festive decorations for the holidays, welcoming you to a pre-Hanukkah and pre-Christmas edition of Inside Track. Rabbi Tom joins us running the board, playing Hanukkah songs, and taking your calls. He's uh, doing a brocha right now. If you have a comment or question during today's show, for our guest on topic, you can reach us by calling the rabbi on the Tucson Iron and Metal Retail Live Line at 520-790-2040. Hey, Bruce and I want to remind you to please support our great sponsors, Tucson Iron and Metal Retail. Call Jamie or Craig at 209-1576. Corazon Cabinets, Joy and Ellie at Corazon Cabinets, 488-2266. And of course, Eric Rudin and his pros from Essential Pest Control. Call his great team now at 886 886- 3029. Also supporting Inside Track is the aforementioned Eb Wilkinson, my favorite boy chick from Wilkinson Wealth Management. Let Eb make more gelt for your retirement. Call for Eb at 777-1911. Eb and I support all of our locally owned, family-run businesses who support our show. So should you. Before we get to our special guest today, Dr. Marion Tupi, let me share a few thoughts about Hanukkah and Christmas. First, let me start by saying this Jew loves Christmas. During the holiday season, I wish everyone a Merry Christmas in emails, at the grocery store, and especially to all of our listeners here who mostly don't celebrate Hanukkah. What surprises me is that more non-Jews do not wish others, especially strangers, a Merry Christmas. What is even stranger are the looks or the non-reply and blank looks I get of the people that do celebrate Christmas, unlike me, when I greet them with a Merry Christmas. Hey, like the song says, this is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. Christmas is about cheer, little kids, good feelings. It's also about the birth of Jesus, a Jew. I appreciate that and appreciate our Judeo-Christian beliefs and heritage we share. I've actually been to Nazareth, to Bethlehem, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, been to the Sea of Galilee, walked the Stations of Christ, and looked at the locations where Christ is said to have been born where he died, and where he was buried. Like Adam Sandler and loads of other Jewish kids growing up, we lived in the only only house on the street without decorations or a tree in the window, and I used to feel a bit squirrely around Christmas time. Even though I did know that we had eight nights of gifts rather than just one, pretty wild time for a kid. As I grew older, though, I came to appreciate what Hanukkah and Christmas mean and how it related to my whole perspective, and it changed. Hanukkah is not a major Jewish holiday, but it is a symbolic celebration. But it's never been as Christmas more commercialized until just recently, and now Christmas and Hanukkah are very commercialized. However, there are 
core beliefs of the holidays is speak more to miracles than the miracles of gifts for the kiddies. The birth of Jesus and the Christmas, excuse me, the birth of Jesus and the story of Christmas is all about miracles. So was Hanukkah. Jews in the Holy Land were attacked by Syrians who were Greek proxies. They forbade reading Torah, praying in the Beit Knesset, celebrating the Sabbath and Brit Milah. The enemy sacked and defiled the temple in Jerusalem. Jewish rebels led by Judah Maccabee, the hammer, and his family fought them and miraculously defeated King Antiochus and his armies. Even my five-year-old grandson knows that story. When the Temple Mount was retaken, Jews not only found the temple defiled, but the eternal flame was extinguished, and they only had one day's worth of oil to keep the candle lit at their disposal. The miracle of Hanukkah was not only the shocking defeat of a much stronger army, but the lighting of the temple lamp and preserving the religion and a way of life for Jews. And like all of the Christian world at this time of year, this is a time of rejoicing and appreciating our rich spiritual beliefs and traditions, whether it be Kris Kringle and Midnight Mass or the delicious potato latkes and souffignot. Those are donuts fried in oil, uh, as well as lighting the menorah. Hanukkah also has a special meaning to my family because my mother, Luana Faye Ash, died suddenly in 1988 on the first night of Hanukkah. And we all celebrate her life still by going to synagogue and lighting a yardside candle alongside the menorah on the first night of Hanukkah in our homes. So Hanukkah for the Ash family, for Jane and I, our sons, my sisters, nephews, and nieces, and now the next generation who get to hear and reminisce about our mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother, Hanukkah is bittersweet. I'll end my little story about the miracle of these two holidays by recalling uh, that on the last day of the mourning period, when we were all about to twist the last little light bulb on our family's newfangled electric menorah, that last light bulb suddenly illuminated on its own just as we were walking over to say the prayer for lighting the candle. And that, that event helped create our own family's Hanukkah tradition and the memory of our mother whose, live, whose life we feel is still with us. I'll conclude this afternoon by saying a Merry Christmas and Hog Sameach Hanukkah to everyone listening to the show today with hopes that you too will see the miracle of our holidays and enjoy a sweet time together with your family and loved ones this year. Hey, Mr. Producer, let's go to our first break. You're listening to Inside Track on KVOI, Trusted Local News and Talk. When we return, we'll start our chat with our special guest, Dr. Marion Tupi, on our underpopulated Earth. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Put on the yarmulke 
of people who are Jewish. Just like you and me. Winona Ryder drinks Manischewitz wine then spins a dreidel with Ralph Lauren and Calvin Klein. Guess who gives and receives loads of Hanukkah toys the girls from Baruch Assault and all three Beastie Boys. Lenny Kravitz is half Jewish. Courtney Love is half too. Put them together. What a funky, badass shoe. We got Harvey Keitel and flash dancer Jennifer Gills. Yasmin Blade from Baywatch is Jewish And yes, her boobs are real Put on that yarmulke Eshabonaka Two-time Oscar winner Dustin Hoffmanaka Celebrates Monica O.J. Simpson Still not a Jew but guess who is the guy who does the voice for Scooby-Doo? <laughs> Bob Dylan was born a Jew, then he wasn't, but now he's back. Mary Tyler Moore's husband is Jewish, cause we're pretty good in the sack. Guess who got bar mitzvahed on the PGA Tour? No, I'm not talking about Tiger Woods. I'm talking about Mr. Happy Gilmore. So many Jews are in the showbiz. Bruce Springsteen isn't Jewish, but my mother thinks he is. Tell that old Monica, it's time to celebrate Hanukkah. It's not pronounced Hanukkah. The sea is silent in Hanukkah. So read your hook on Hanukkah. Get drunk and Tijuana. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. 
So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing, and then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through, but that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house. We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Ed Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management reminding you that every good and excellent thing stands moment by moment on the razor's edge of danger and must be fought for, including getting out of debt, building your wealth, and protecting your God-given right. We manage money for gun owners. Let us help you retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me at 777-1911 or WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. Back to Inside Track. Uh, our special guest this afternoon is Dr. Marion Tupi. Uh, sorry, Dr. Tupi, it's uh, uh, pre-Christmas and pre-Hanukkah. We got all the, the Christmas songs last week, and now we're playing Hanukkah songs. That song, Dr. Tupi, was sung to me by my three-year-old uh, uh, granddaughter last night with dancing. So I just wanted to know where that came from. Good to have you with us today. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, happy festive season, Merry Christmas, and a happy Hanukkah. You bet. So, uh, for our listeners, Dr. Tupi is an economist and senior policy analyst at Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. He was born in Czechoslovakia, grew up in South Africa, I could tell by the accent, thank you very much, and was educated in Scotland. He founded humanprogress.org in 2013 on the premise that the media misuses data to paint an overly negative picture of development. Yes, we know that. He is co-author of the new book, Super Abundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. That's www.superabundance.com. Yep. Hey, welcome to Inside Track, Dr. Tupi. So... South Africa and Scotland, so that's where the bull tang hummus comes in. 
<laughs> yes, uh, biltong <laughs> is the our jerky in uh, South Africa, and um, you know if you haven't had uh, haggis uh, from Scotland, you should. It's a great food to have, especially in wintertime. Yeah, I've had both. They're delicious. Hey, people have been writing and hypothesizing about the end of the world, population explosions, about the shrinking natural resources, and some countries, notably China, have sought to curtail birth rates for decades, but you believe we're underpopulated. Tell us why. Well, I believe that, uh, you know, people should have as many babies as they want. Uh, I just don't want people to be making decisions about how many children they should have based on apocalyptic predictions that never come true. And in this particular book, Superabundance, we focus specifically on the question of resources. Is the earth going to run out of resources if we have more people? Um, and uh, the answer is no. Every 1% increase in population decreases prices of, uh, of resources by 1%. Um, and, and so to the extent that people are not having children because they think the world is going to come to an end because we are going to run out of resources or the world is going to burn up in 12 years or something like that, they should not take that into account. They may take into it they may make their decisions based on other factors, maybe uh, expensive housing or uh, the, the woman wants to enter the job market and have a position where she doesn't want to have babies, certainly not before the age of 40. But, 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 but those are decisions for the parents. Uh, don't be impacted by the apocalyptic thought. Uh, it's, it's got no leg to stand on. That's the argument of the book. So when you talk about every 1% increase in population, decreases prices by 1%. How do you how do you get that? Well, you get that by by understanding that every human being comes into the world not just with an empty stomach but also a brain. We are not like rabbits or rats rats or yeast in a petri dish. Uh you know, when 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 rabbits are encountered with a good rain and a lot of grass, they will eat a lot, they are going to have a lot of babies, they're going to consume all the grass and they're going to die. Human beings are not like that. We are intelligent uh, animals. We are, uh, we are long-term planners, and we are problem solvers. So when there's a problem, um, we solve it through technological uh, innovation. And, of course, the more people you have, the more ideas you have, the more technological solutions you have. So, in fact, in our model, uh, population numbers play a very important role. The more people you have, the more ideas you have, the more ideas you have, the more inventions you have, the more... Uh, productivity gains you have and the higher standards of living you have. Ultimately, everything is about technological progress, about innovation. Uh, that's how we improve our standards of living. And uh, those innovations can only come from the human mind. So the more people you have, the more innovations you have. So would a good example of that be 100 years ago, we were going to run out of coal and oil in 50 years, and yet here we are with still several hundred years supply left? Well, after 100 years of intensive use of fossil fuels, we now have uh, more known reserves of oil and gas than ever before. Uh, there are huge uh, chunks of the world that haven't been explored at all, right? Because the oil is so cheap. Uh, you may not feel it that way, but it's so cheap, historically speaking, that, that there's really no reason for us to go and explore um, other parts of the world to search for more oil, for example, or gas deposits. And of course, uh, once, once, uh, once uh, you know, technology, is, let, let's assume that technology stagnates. We no longer have something like fracking and we are not able to get to deeper deposits. 
well, in that case, the prices are going to jump up. People are going to look, uh, start looking for deposits somewhere else, or alternatively, we are going to come up with a different kind of energy source. So, you know, uh, we, we are going to have a solution to our energy problems, uh, such as fusion, long time before we run out of anything. So, what does the term superabundance mean? Um, so, in our book, uh, we look at uh, uh, whether things are becoming more abundant relative to wages. In other words, how long you have to work in order to afford something. We don't use dollars and cents across time because there's an issue of inflation. Nobody really knows how to measure it properly. There are you know, huge debates over whether inflation is 2% or 3% or 8% or whatever. Um, but time is constant. And so we ask ourselves, uh, how long would a blue-collar worker or an unskilled laborer in the United States have to work in order to buy a pound of rice or beef or pork in uh, 1800 or 1900 or 1980? And how long do they have to work to uh, buy the same today? And um, uh, it turns out that American workers have to work less and less and less uh, number of minutes or hours in order to buy their basic commodities. Uh, so things are becoming uh, thing, things are becoming cheaper now. So so historically speaking, people always thought that as population grew, things would become less abundant. We find that they are becoming more abundant. But abundance in our model can grow at two different speeds. It can grow at a lower rate than than population growth, or it can grow at a higher rate than population growth. And when it grows at a higher rate than population growth. Uh, we call that superabundance. And in fact, when we looked at hundreds of different commodities going back to all the way to 1850, what we found that uh, everything grows in abundance at a superabundant rate, which is to say that if population grows at 2%, abundance must grow at least 3% to qualify as superabundance. And that's what, exactly what we find. So how do you measure superabundance? Well, if, if the population grows uh, at 2% a year, but things are becoming more abundant of 3% or more, we call that superabundance. It's just a technical term. Oh, okay. Okay, and so... Of, it's a technical term for the speed of progress. How should, I, I should put it that way. Okay, so what can stop superabundance? Well, um, a number of things. One thing is that uh, we could stop growing in population. So let's assume that 5% of the world's population, I think that's a pretty solid estimate, uh, will ever innovate anything or invent anything. Uh, well, under those circumstances, in a population of 1 billion, you're going to have many fewer inventors and innovators than in a population of 8 billion or 10 billion. And, uh, you know, estimates suggest that by 2060, population is going to start, uh, start falling around the world. Uh, and so if people are going to st stop having babies and uh, we no longer have population growth, then, of course, there will be fewer people to have new ideas and uh, uh, new innovations, and uh, our growth rate will, will fall. Uh, other reasons to be worried about uh, population growth is that we have, in the United States alone, um, $31 trillion debt. Um, that's just the explicit debt. But we also have a $100 trillion implicit debt. This is debt that we have promised to future generations in terms of Social Security and health care. And the fewer people, fewer Americans you have to pay for it, the higher that taxes will have to be. So, so these are just some of the ways in which population growth can have fundamental effect on, uh, on, 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 on the health of the economy. Um, that, that's one danger. The other one is, of course, that government will basically the, the, the bureaucracy will suffocate our innovation, innovative processes. 
that will basically stop innovating. In Europe, they have what what they call is a precautionary principle. You cannot basically implement any new technology until you prove to the bureaucracy that uh, that technology uh, is perfectly safe. Um, and, and, and that is basically the death knell of any innovation because, because innovation can be, you know, 60 or 70 or 80 percent good, but maybe 20 percent bad. Um, and and if that, those are the standards for implementing any kind of innovation, then, then, then we won't have any innovation. Uh, part of the reason why the United States is so much more dynamic economically than Europe is because our innovators uh, have more room to run than uh, than than people in Europe. So bureaucracy and and a powerful state that 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 prioritizes safety over innovation can definitely um, strangle uh, growth. And and the third reason I would say is which is very important is freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Um, in order for you to uh, really come up with an idea and then implement it, you need to be free to speak, to associate, to uh, to to think, to publish. Uh, to be able to invest in the stock market to, uh, you know, to profit. And uh, if we have a government which basically um, picks winners and losers in the marketplace and uh, prevents us from uh, having the economic freedom, uh, then, 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 then growth and innovation can also be strangled. Well, hey, fascinating subject. We've got to take a break. Mr. Producer, let's go to the bottom of the hour break. You're listening to KVOI on, or a uh, inside track on KVOI, Trusted Local News and Talk. When we return, we're going to continue our chat with Dr. Marion Tupi about his book, Superabundance. We'll be right back. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing metal plate and roofing materials as well as new and used steel aluminum and stainless steel to ranchers artists interior designers roofers and do-it-yourselfers just like all the listeners here tucson iron and metal retail is open monday through fridays 8 a.m to 4 30 p.m and saturdays 8 a.m to noon tucson iron and steel retail 701 east 36th street Call 520-209-1576 or go to TucsonIronRetail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? (sighs) No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Eb Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. Are you letting rising inflation interfere with your ammo budget? Don't do that. Let us show you how to buy the same goods and services 20 years from now as you can today. We manage money for gun owners and we can guide you to retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911 or WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. 
I'll tell a tale, 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 tale yeah. Of Maccabees in Israel, hell, hell, hell yeah. When the Greeks tried to assail, sell, sell, sell yeah. But it was all to no avail, fail, fail, fail Yeah, yeah, the war went on and on and on Until the mighty Greeks were gone Yeah, I put my lockers in the air sometimes Saying it Welcome back to Inside Track. We continue our, our Hanukkah songs, but we continue our... This is a fascinating chat with Dr. Marion Tupi about his new book, Super Abundance, and the debate between those who believe there are far too many people versus uh, too few people, or excuse me, too many people, and the impact on the world. If you have a question or comment for our special guest, uh, Dr. Tupi, on topic today, please call into the show, 520-790-2040. Producer Tom, our in-house Hanukkah rabbi, will answer your call and put you on the air. So, um, Dr. Tupi, you said something, and I didn't want it just to kind of fly through the air and and, and not uh, get you to um, comment further. So, on the, that projection, 2060, uh, the population of the Earth begins to decline. Number one, I would, I would ask the question, so what's that based upon? And number two, if if more population is going to create a better life for us all, how does that curve get reversed and and continue increasing population after 2060? Well, it is based on... uh, uh, Look, demographic projections are among the best projections that we can make. They're much better, much more solid than, say, for example, estimates of global warming or something like that, because we can look at how many babies people have Uh, we can look at historical trends uh, of you know what happens when societies become wealthy and educated and and so forth and we can project into the future you know what uh, you know when when uh, how the population growth is going to is going to uh, when it's going to peak in 107 countries out of 190 countries in the world birth rates are already below the replacement level. A replacement level basically means that there has to be 2.1 children per woman per lifetime on average uh, for the population to be stable because there is always that small fraction of babies who are going to die before they're going to become adults. So that's just so to maintain. To, just to maintain. And in 107 out of 190 countries, it's already below that level. In some parts of the world, it's absolutely staggeringly low. In Korea, it's 0.9 instead of 2.1. In much of Central Europe, it's like 1.3, 1.4. In France, Britain, it's about 1.8. In the United States, among native-born women, it's 1.7. But our population continues to grow because of immigration. Um, but, um, but, but yes, so, so based on, on those low birth rates, how many new babies are coming to the world, we can then project that population is going to peak at around 2060. Um, already only in one region of the world, uh, do women have more babies than, uh, is required for replacement level or above replacement level. And that's sub-Saharan Africa. 
in Latin America, in Asia, believe it or not, uh, certainly in Europe and North America, it's below that level. Israel is a very interesting outlier it here. Sure is. Where, um, where it's not just Orthodox Jews who have more babies uh, than necessary for replacement level, but also secular. Uh, so, so a lot of people, a lot of academics and scholars are beginning to look at Israel and say, what is it that the Israelis are doing uh, that, that is right? Because, because when you look at American society or European society, you cannot really compare them to sub-Saharan Africa or even Asia or Latin America, but you can compare them to a, a sophisticated, educated and rich society like Israel. And so a lot of people are looking there and, and, you know, checking out why is it that Israelis have so many children whilst others don't. Uh, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, so, some hypothesis I heard was because Israel has been doing so well for so such a long time. There is, a, there is an aspect of optimism, perhaps even an aspect of nationalism in it. Uh, I don't know the answer. But the bottom line is it is not an irreversible trend. Um, obviously, it doesn't mean that as society becomes richer, it has to die out. Israel is a good counterexample to that. Um, so, so, um, so what can be done about it? Well, uh, again, you know, I believe uh, firmly that women should have as many babies as they want. Uh, just, just make your decisions based on real concerns, not on unreal concerns. We are not going to run out of resources so to the extent that you are making your decisions because you think that the world is going to somehow end you 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 don't have to do that that that's really so that that's the that's the narrow goal of the book so we've seen uh, or heard and seen all kinds of different reasons why um uh, families aren't as large as they as they used to be um and I, I guess I have to admit, maybe my wife and I were, were a little selfish. We had two sons, and we figured that was that was good enough for us. And we were we weren't really thinking about, uh, gee, you know, keeping the world population going. We were just trying to have a family. Um, but what you what you said about uh, people consciously making that decision not to have children, um, and it being so, um, uh, in some cases, so based upon a condition looking at politics or looking at the world situation, isn't it possible, and maybe this is a stupid question, I, I admit it going into it, we haven't hit rock bottom, you know, that societally or, or politically or any otherwise, any other way, um, that there has to be some sort of event that tells human beings we need to have more uh, more population. Is that possible? Or or you know, are governments clamping down as well, like in China and other places, you know, wanting to uh, restrict the number of children that families have? Um, I don't know. I mean, I mean, when, when you look at sub-Saharan Africa, where people are still having many more children than than is necessary for uh, to keep population stable. In other words, those populations are still growing. Are obviously much much poorer. Uh, than than ours, and many of them are at the at the rock bottom. If if anything, um, the 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 relationship seems to be the the other way around, which mm. is the richer the society gets, uh, and the more educated and free Great it point. gets, yeah. the, the 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 fewer the fewer babies women have. Um, uh, so, for example, if the, the, there's, an, there's, a, there's a term in economics called opportunity cost. Mm. So let's say that you have a 
typical sub-Saharan African woman, and uh, she doesn't really have that many opportunities in the in the marketplace. Uh, it costs her nothing except her time and her work, obviously, which is substantial, to stay at home and take care of six children. Now, some of them, unfortunately, are going to die because it's still a very poor society with very poor health care. But, but, you know, six or eight children uh, is, not, is not uncommon, uh, even if some of them are going to die before adulthood. Um, now, on the other hand, if you've got a woman in Asia uh, who can enter the job market um, and, and, and earn $10,000 a year, which may sound a, too little for us, but it's a it's massive amount of money in the developing world, uh, then staying at home and taking of, uh, of children would be equivalent to $10,000. Or even take a woman who uh, wants to, say, go to Wall Street uh, or, or go into the corporate world. There, the salaries are very high, 200, 250,000, maybe even more. So, so, uh, so if she decides to stay at home and take, uh, take care of the children, it, it, the, the cost in economic terms is about a quarter of a million dollars that she could be making sure. um, in terms of money. So as education and, um, and income increase, uh, women have fewer babies. That, that, that is a sort of a, a, almost an iron law in demographics. Fine. But what we are finding in um, uh, what we found in our book, well, in, in the last chapter, we talk about these public opinion polls um, in rich countries as well as around the world, where a substantial number of women are saying they are not having, they, they decided not to have children, not because of economic concerns, like I could be making more money in, in the job market. No, they are making their decisions based on the, the, the notion that the world is going to end, mm. right? right. And, and, and that, is, that, that is a sort of a self-inflicted wound in terms of population growth. It's a, it's a, it's a mania, it's an obsession about the state of the world, this, this apocalyptic millenarian religion right that has grown up in the West. Extreme environmentalism. And I want to be very careful here. I'm not denying that we have environmental problems. I am very much uh, an environmentalist myself. I, 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 uh, I, I admire and agree with much of what smart uh, environmentalists are saying out there. But there is a difference between those kinds of people and then the environmental apocalypse who go into museums and throw soup and, uh, at paintings of Van Gogh or uh, try to destroy art and things like that, or sit in the middle of highways to prevent traffic from happening. These people are religious fanatics, and they ought to be stopped because they are poisoning the whole world with their millenarian ideas of the coming apocalypse. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that also includes uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Al Gore, who say, you know, Alexandria is saying the world's going to end in 12 years. Al Gore, who said we'd all be underwater by now because of the melting ice caps and you know his yes. you know the carbon footprint is damaging and yet he continues to fly all over the world in his private jet hey we've got a caller charles heller has something to say charles well if al gore wants to submerge himself permanently or greta thunberg chooses not to reproduce um i vote yes i second an i but by the same token i wondered if you've done any demographic projections dr Tupi, and uh, about which populations are exceeding the replacement rate and which are declining and what that might mean for polit the political future of the planet based on who will have more people. 
Well, yes. So if the current population trends continue, then by 2100, uh, just about every third person in the world, maybe maybe between three and four persons in the world, will be an African. And um, uh, obviously, there will be many, many fewer Europeans within a couple, you know, I come from Czechoslovakia within you know, <laughs> within four or five generations, we'll be able to, all, all of us will be able to sit around a dinner table. <laughs> there will be so few of us if, if, if these demographic trends continue. Um, that has impact on economic growth for sure. And that is that, you see, superabundance or economic growth, if you will, um, is, is not just a function of population growth, but it's also a function of freedom. Um, if, if population itself was the only reason why we have all of this abundance, um, then China would be the most prosperous country for 2,000 years, because that's how long they've been populous, the uh, most populous country in the world. But obviously, until very recently, China was very poor, and that's because they didn't have freedom. It's only free people. Uh, the, the more people you have and the more freedom you have, then the more economic growth you can have. And so the and issue also- here is, the, so the issue here is just a final statement uh, that that if population is going to collapse in countries where you have a high degree of freedom and a high degree of economic growth and innovation, um, whereas you are going to have a population explosion in countries that don't have freedom, then that's obviously not helpful either uh, in terms of global economic growth, because all those people who could be innovating in Africa and elsewhere um, are not going to have the opportunity to do so because they're going to be stuck in countries that do not favor innovation. Yeah, they're busy trying to survive. Where, and, where, and I'll take my answer to this one on the, on the uh, radio, but where does that place India, which has some amount of freedom, but a tremendous amount of bureaucracy and also a caste system to overcome, where does that place India in terms of population growth vis-a-vis freedom? And I'll hear my answer on the radio. Great question, Charles. Um, I'm very bullish on India. I'm much more bullish on India than I am, for example, on China. Um, China has lost its uh, most populous country in the world status to India this year, or it may lose it next year. Uh, as you know, the Chinese have made a spectacular mistake in preventing the births of about 400 million people between 1978 and 2015 during the One China policy, whereas the Indian population continues to grow. The Indian population uh, lives in a democratic society. Uh, you know, it's, it may not be as free as the United States, but it is very free by, uh, by, by global standards. Uh, they speak English, very important. They have rule of law. They have independent court system. Uh, they have regular elections. Uh, they are highly educated. And uh, the old joke in the 1960s and the 1970s was that an Indian will succeed anywhere except in India. That's because it was overly bureaucratized. But India has been liberalizing its economy since 1991 and has, uh, has, has been growing spectacularly well. I mean, its economic growth in the last 10 years has been something like 7% per year. So I'm very bullish on India, and I think that's, that may well be uh, the next center of power in Asia will be in India rather than China. We're talking with Dr. Marin Tupi. His book, uh, Superabundance. Eb has some more questions. So, Dr. Tupi, let's bring up that freedom thing. You were born in Czechoslovakia, which was under Soviet domination. Products were available, or the ones that were available were so scarce, and the currency was basically worthless. You had people standing in lines not even knowing what was at the other end of the line. 
just hoping that it was something that they needed. But now the various countries which grew out of that former Soviet satellite state have flourished vibrantly. The populations are uh, successful, you know. Uh, talk about your own life story and how does that intersect with your theories? Well, sure. I mean, look, the, the, the book itself is an empirical work of scholarship, so it's not an ideological book. Uh, but but I do have my views on uh, on capitalism, on uh, free markets, on uh, on liberal democracy, and I like them. <laughs> not surprisingly, um, I was born in uh, Czechoslovakia in 1976, so that was eight years after the Soviet invasion. We were under occupation until the early 90s. Um, and yes, um, the shops were empty. Um, the the, uh, the well, you, you could get access to um, to sophisticated goods like bananas and oranges, uh, usually on the black market, uh, meaning that you had to bribe somebody in order to get that. Um, but generally, the, the shops were empty, and even though people were paid, the, the the problem there wasn't that people didn't have money in their pockets. The problem was that there was nothing in the shops and the currency was valueless vis-a-vis uh, -vis hard currencies like the Deutschmark or the British pound or the American dollar. And so if you went abroad, those people who were lucky enough to go abroad uh, couldn't buy anything with that money either. And of course, we were prevented from going abroad by and large. Um, individuals would be allowed to travel to the West but the families would be kept behind as hostages. My father, who was a medical doctor, for example, could go occasionally to Austria for medical conferences, but the children were left behind as hostages uh, because obviously no sane person would want to go back. And so um, I, I guess since an early childhood, I understood that socialism was a dead end, that it wasn't going to work out, that it was a horrible system. And then when the wall came down and, and we got bigger capitalism, just shops magically became full again. And, uh, and it was an extraordinary um, uh, experience to live through. Um, so, yes, I'm very keen on, on that. And, and I'm, not, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not enamored with uh, people like AOC, who, um, uh, who, who, who seems to be a bit of a socialist, or an outright socialist like Bernie Sanders. Well, she claims um, she is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, whilst working on an iPhone, wearing expensive jeans, uh, going to galas with multi-billionaires, etc. There was something that that and driving a Tesla. Uh, uh, yes, um, very expensive car uh, that most blue-collar Americans cannot afford. But there was something that the, the previous questioner asked about that that I didn't answer fully, and and that is that the level of hypocrisy that we are seeing amongst the environmentalists is truly staggering, not just environmentalists, but socialists as well. I mean, Al Gore has a number of houses. If he was real about, um, about global warming, then he would want to limit his carbon footprint. In fact, it's a massive carbon footprint that just arises from his many different properties. Um, John Kerry, the, the Biden's uh, in, environment czar, travels around the world in a private jet. I mean, you couldn't make this up even if you tried. And the extraordinary thing is that shame has disappeared from our public life completely. There was a time 20, 30 years ago, maybe, that if somebody lived such a hypocritical life, uh, he or she would be called on that. They would be dismissed from polite society 
as, as utter hypocrites who are not to be listened to. But that sort of thing has sort of disappeared. People are still listening to AOC and Bernie Sanders, multimillionaire with three or four different houses, and to Al Gore and, and uh, people like that. And, and that is a bit of a puzzle to me, I must admit. Well, the media supports them and, and basically uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, allow any criticism to be drawn toward them. So, you know, the, most of the people just sort of keep on with life, I guess. Yeah, and, 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 and th- that is another problem, of course, is that if media doesn't report on what every sensible American can see with his own eyes, then that undermines... Uh, any kind of trust in the media and and the media I mean, it's 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 a great puzzle the media personnel you know journalists go around saying why don't you trust us you know why is it that you are not reading our articles well look what you are reporting on um look at your blind spots um you know the, the certain politicians are protected class you never talk about them and 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 that is just terribly destructive for public life yeah, when you've when you've got uh, somebody in charge of Department of Homeland Security saying that the border is secure, you know, it's almost like Baghdad Bob back in Iraq saying the United States is not invaded, as he's looking at the M1 Abrams rolling behind him. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. You know, whatever your views on immigration, and I sort of tend not to talk about this subject because I'm an immigrant to the United States myself. But um, whatever your views on immigration. It used to be understood in this country uh, that we need to know who is coming here, that not everybody who is coming across the border in the South wishes us well. Uh, there could be terrorists coming in, uh, um, and, and we simply have no idea who is coming in, just, just zero, uh, because the, 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 the control over the border has, has completely broken down. And this is something which is, um, again, um, a tremendous source of puzzlement because it it doesn't really help our security. No, and my comment was more based on the fact of how we cannot trust the media. It's because not yeah. only do you lie, you blatantly lie. And yeah. when you're called on it, you lie again. You know, it's who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Let me let me yeah. let me switch topics a little bit. I want to get back to consumption. Um, much of uh, the rest of the world and lots of uh, people left of center here in this country accuse Americans, and I suppose the same thing is said in, in certain European countries and so on, about uh, being uh, super consumers and you know overly con- you know overly consumer uh, conscious. You know, wanting to own everything, buy everything. You know, using up all the resources we have. Um, but but you know. That just that doesn't fly right. It seems. I mean, people if they do get wealth, if they if they're earning more than just living paycheck to paycheck, which is not, which is becoming more and more of a problem these days because of inflation. Um, you know how how valid is that uh, that accusation about being overly you know consuming our resources here in America? Well, let's separate consumption from resources uh, just for the sake of this question. Um, It's very interesting that people who are talking about overconsumption are usually people who are extremely well off. Uh, much of our clarity, the, 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 the people in academia, people, you know, professors of, uh, at, at universities, professors of humanities who are pulling in an income of quarter of a million dollars a year are telling Americans that they should buy less. Not them, of course, not them. They can still live in their mansions and have two or three cars, 
and their holiday homes and fly around the world to conferences and on expensive holidays. No, they should, they should be allowed to live this aristocratic life of high spending and high consumption. It's the masses, the rest of us, who are bringing in much less people on incomes, uh, you know, I mean, medium income for family or household in the United States is like $70,000. So it, it's those people who should consume less, but not people like, uh, you know, like Al Gore or, or ALC or Bernie Sanders, multimillionaire. So, um, so, so I, will, I will take it seriously, this argument, uh, when uh, people who are pulling in quarter of a million dollars in salary every year um, give $200,000 to charity and try to live on $50,000, sell all of their homes and stop traveling around the world. Until that time, I'm not listening to them. Um, obviously, a lot of Americans still uh, feel that they could consume more, uh, maybe have a nicer house, maybe have a nicer car, uh, maybe go on a holiday twice a year rather than one, once a year, maybe go to a restaurant occasionally, things like that. So there are a lot of people, uh, tens of millions of Americans who could increase their consumption uh, and, 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 and feel better and have a better life. Dr. Tupi, we're right up on it. Tell everybody how they can get your book and how to learn more about the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you. Sorry, yeah, one I minute so much. left. Uh, go, go to Amazon, go to Walmart, uh, anywhere. Uh, and, and, and if you want to know more about the book, superabundance.com. Get it for your children, especially so that they don't, that they don't get poisoned with Marxist ideas in college. Superabundance.com. Thank you very much. We could have spent two hours on this topic, but we only had uh, less than an hour. That's going to do it for us today. Eb and I want to thank Dr. Tupi for joining us. It's time to go back to buying and consuming vast quantities of products online and in the mall for Christmas and Hanukkah before time runs out. Um, the modern and luxurious KVOI broadcast uh, and media studios will be closed up tighter than a Christmas drum next Saturday on December 24th. So we'll offer up a best of show featuring our excellent interview with W with Wall Street Journal correspondent Ben Kessling on his book Bravo Company. Be sure to check out my Facebook and Twitter accounts uh, to find out about what's going on. All of my inside track, uh, all of our inside track episodes are available on. Apple Podcasts and KVY. Until next time for Inside Track, this is Bruce. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. What other kind of customers do you have? So our biggest customers are actually like ranchers and people from outside of the Tucson area. They're buying a lot of square tubing. They're buying a lot of stuff for their ranch to close off fences. We'll sell anything from 10 feet to 10,000 feet to somebody that comes in because we have new steel and surplus steel from steel mills. The reason we're able to get such good pricing on some of this stuff is A, we sell scrap to the mill. So... Uh, we have a relationship there and then we can buy material what they're making bringing it back and so we save on freight and we have relationships for years with them so i think that's really our niche market we'll sell whatever you need tucson iron and metal surplus call 209-1579 stop by the yard 701 east 36th street open monday through saturday This is Ed Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management reminding you that every good and excellent thing stands moment by moment on the razor's edge of danger and must be fought for, including getting out of debt, building your wealth, and protecting your God-given right. We manage money for gun owners. Let us help you retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me at 777-1911. 
or Wilkinson Wealth, MG, M